If you would, this morning, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. That's where we find ourselves this morning. And, and, and like Rob, I came uh, first to this passage and was like, man, really? Abraham does the same thing he did in Genesis 12 and lies about his wife being his sister, and I have to teach this. But I found, not only myself in here, but I found that this passage so clearly articulates the gospel of Christ. And I can't wait to teach it to you this morning. Uh, If you were to describe the Old Testament in one word or and, and honestly, if, if, you, if I was to say, hey, you, you have three or four months and you can only read the Old Testament, like what would come to mind? Like I'm going to be reading a lot about what would you say or how would you describe the Old Testament just using one word? Go ahead and give, give it to me. A little interaction here. What's the one word? And be honest about it. What, what, do, you, what do you think of? Harsh. Harsh. Law. Law. Yeah. Weird. Weird. Is that, that's a kid. All right, we're, we're, we're getting honest. It's weird. All right, what, what else? Covenants. Covenants? Awesome. What about grace? This is, this is something where as I, as I didn't see this uh, until recently. I was in seminary class, and I had a professor, and he was walking through the Old Testament. And he was saying, you need to be able to, to preach the gospel from the Old Testament as well. And I was just like, how do you do that? And he started walking through. And the more that I saw, everything points to Jesus. Everything points to the gospel. And so this message is really, it's, it, Genesis 20 is this perfect illustration of grace, of what has happened on the cross and so I hope that this morning that you begin to look at the Old Testament and one of the words that you would use to describe it would be his grace and that it points to the goodness of God, especially with what he has done and fulfilled in Jesus. The other thing that in this passage, what it has done in me this last week is it has caused me to reflect back because Abraham is, is being protected and Sarah's being protected here in this story as he lies and hands his wife over to the king. What ends up happening is God protects uh, the sin against Sarah from happening, but also protects Abraham from him actually have done this and protects the king as well. And I was thinking about this in the the ways of it's easy to think of God on the sidelines of our lives, but he is sovereign and intricately involved in our lives. And I also started to think back of how God has protected me over the years in my story. When I was in high school— I partook in so many different stupid things that if I had been caught and handed over to the consequences, I probably would have been in juvenile and I probably would not have be standing here. There's just so many things that I did where it's just like, oh, I look back, I'm like, thank you, God, that I did not face the consequences. Also true, though, is that there are moments in my life where I have faced consequences, faced hardship, faced things that I've, that I've done, or just life in general suffering, where I look back on, where in the moment I'm not seeing it as the grace of God, but when I look back on that situation, I think, man, that so shaped me, and that now I actually see this situation as God's grace to me because it so formed me. It so shaped me that I would not be the same person had it not been for God's grace in allowing that hardship to happen. Is any of you tracking with that? So both are true, that, that God has allowed consequences to happen or just allowed life to happen, and also true that God has protected me from consequences of things that have happened. Most of I talk about all the time. 
looking back at my story, it is only by the grace of God that I am standing where I am standing today. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I'm coming to see so clear that everything is grace. We see the narrative of Abraham. We see that he takes great steps of faith. He, he steps out in, into what God's calling him. He walks closely with God. He trusts deeply, acts graciously. But then we see, come to a passage like this, and we see him fail and fail again with the same thing, and he acts foolishly. He believes and he doubts. He acts courageously and he cowards. He trusts God and he acts in his own strength. Abraham sounds like a guy that I'm very familiar with, me. In Abraham, in this story, I believe that we have a mirror reflecting back to ourselves. And I hope that's what you see today as well. It's not that Abraham is totally bad. He's not totally good. He does great things, but he also does despicable things. He is flawed by a sinful nature. And as Rob pointed out last week in another tough passage, that we are designed to walk in communion with God in the garden, but we live in a fallen, sinful world. And we use illegitimate ways to figure out how we can fulfill what we think we need. And so this is a passage really talking about that. Now, sometimes we tend to idealize uh, people in the Bible and think that we need to become like Abraham in his faith. And while they are giants in the faith in many ways, we also need to see their humanness in it as well, that it is God who chose Abraham, not because of his morality or his goodness, but because of God's grace. And God upholds his plan in his life. Dallas Willard says this in the Renovation of the Heart, to grow in grace means to utilize more and more grace to live by. Until everything we do is assisted by grace. The greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace, who indeed are in most in need of grace. Those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being, grace to them is like breath. I hope that we conclude this morning and that you see that it is not uh, for us to be so self-reliant that we get to a place where we only need grace when we fail, but that we need grace every breath, every step of our lives, that we are so dependent on him at work within us to sustain us and to keep us and to hold us, that we would view everything in our life as undeserved as grace. That is, that is my hope and my prayer. Would you pray that along with me this morning? Let's pray. Father, this, this passage is, again, not an illustration of, of Abraham uh, as this great man, this good man, his morality that we should try to follow or, or try to be superior to. But it is an illustration so clearly of the gospel that you save those who are unworthy that you offer grace to those who are not perfect. God, would we see clearly that the gospel started as early as chapter 20 in our scriptures, that our need for you, that we would rely on you in every part of our lives. Amen. If you turn to chapter 20 with me in verse 1, that's where we're going to start off this morning. So you pick up in verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
Now, we only can speculate why Abraham picked up everything that he owned, all of his possessions, and traveled. We don't really understand why he did that, but come to think of it, if more of he could see from where he was the destruction of Sodom, and it was probably that he didn't want to be reminded of that every day, of this the desolation. So he picks up everything and moves. That's the only thing we can assume here. Where he was in Sodom was on the west side near the Jordan. Abraham is actually moving to the southern part of what would be the promised land. So Abraham, Abraham is a sojourner in the fact that he has no land. He has no permanent uh, place to call his home. And it's also a reminder here, and just in the first verse, that we are sojourners. That this is a temporary life. That we are not to put our hope and our trust and put everything into this life, but that we are sojourners in the fact that one day we will dwell with God on a new earth, but this is not it. So to put our hope and trust in everything and have here would be foolish. And to hold on to our trust in here, we're not meant to. But Abraham... Uh, does the same thing that he does in uh, chapter 12 in Egypt. He lies about who uh, his wife is. He well, clearly deceives. It's, it's, it's true that it, Sarah is his sister, but it's, it's also an intent to deceive in a way, and we'll get to that. He has a clear intent uh, to, to protect himself and not his wife. Uh, Abraham has an entourage traveling with him, so that's why the king is going to pull him in. There's, there's lots of people with him, and the king is going to obviously take notice and get involved. So pick back up with me, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Now we don't know uh, at this point if he's heard about what happened in Sodom. We, we, potentially the word had traveled. But did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know the integrity of your heart of what you've done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But you, if you do not restore her, know that you surely will die, all, you and all who are yours. So God appears to the king and delivers this sobering reality of what is going on behind the scenes. The king had no idea up to this point. So God is initiating protection in this way. It's a warning, but he's also warning him very clearly, if you do not do this, what's going to happen? Death. Death to you and to those who are with you. But the thing that God says here is that I've protected you from sinning against who? Me right? He says, I protected you from sinning against me. Now, he very easily could have said, I protected you from sinning against Sarah, which would have been true, right? But he says, I protected you from sinning against me, which points to that any sin, first and foremost, is a sin against God. Any sin, first and foremost, is a saying to God, I am going to take matters in my own hands. I am going to, I'm going to put trust in my own hands. I'm going to rely on myself, my provisions, strength of my hands. However we're doing it is ultimately a sin against God. The other thing that this points out too is it's talking about integrity of the heart. The integrity of the heart is really saying that God knows everything. I mean, even this pagan king, God knows the details and inner workings of his heart, and he does ours as well. He didn't say, I stopped you from sinning against Sarah, which 
would have been true. I stopped you from sinning against me. So Sarah was brought into the king's harem. Now, there probably would have been some process into this. There probably would have been uh, taking her in and, and going through purification or, or whatever they would have, have done. But there would have been some period. So this is the time where God speaks to him. But this is just a side note in just reading, just so we know her text well. Sarah is in her 90s, y'all. Now, I don't know if the 90s were like the, the new 30s back then or something, but like, this is just, just side note, you can write that in the margins of your Bible. I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's just, this is reality. So even though Abraham makes this decision, uh, the thing that I was so clear that I want you to be so clear about, there's nothing can thwart God's plan. So even in spite of Abraham, nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward. So in spite of Abraham's decision, he still works for his own glory. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. In spite of us, God works in us and through us. God is not on the sidelines. He's not inactive in the story. He is intricately involved. Now it is up to God whether he allows him to face the consequences. One of the uh, commentaries I was reading by Larry Richards in the in teaching commentary was this. He said this, Abraham shows his lack of trust by getting Sarah to tell a half-truth about their relationship to deny who, he, who she was as his wife. Fear that he might be killed outweighed his commitment to his wife. Abraham repeated the sin he did in Egypt. And again, Abraham misrepresented Sarah only as his sister. And she placed in the harem of a king. God protected Sarah even though her husband was not willing to. And before Abimelech came to her, God God spoke to him in a vision. Abimelech, fearful at the divine visit, complained to Abraham that he might have led the king into unknowing sin. Abraham was worried and afraid that these people in the foreign land visited might not fear God and thus might kill Sarah. Abraham feared for his life, but not for his wife. Just a sobering reality of what took place when Abraham lied. One of the two questions that I don't really spend a lot of time on uh, developing them right now, but that I want you to think about this week if you want to write these down. In what area of your life right now do you have fear that is driving you? That's what's happening with Abraham. In what area are you being driven by fear? And then the response to that question is in what are you saying in your fear by being led and driven by your fear of God's sovereignty? Who are you actually putting your trust in? What are you actually fearing and why are you fearing that? It's just a, a couple of questions just to think about this week. Now, there's no place that Abraham could go where God did not know. I mean, that's the reality of the story. When God is, is protecting him and protecting his plan uh, through him, and he repeats the same thing that he did in Egypt. But God responds to the king, I know in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let her touch you, you touch her. Now, here we see uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility living in this passage. We see God's sovereignty over everything, but also human responsibility that Abraham can choose 
and he can make decisions, and the king can make decisions, and Sarah can make decisions, but we also see God's sovereignty at play in here. By God's good hand, he keeps him from sinning. He sustains him and protects him. And for us, those who have put our faith in Christ, we now have the Holy Spirit who lives within us, who we are to rely on to keep us from sinning and to keep us in right relationship with God, to choose obedience in him. We cannot do this. We cannot walk with God the way that God is calling us to without God. It's just, it's just clear as day. We cannot do what God is calling us to without the Holy Spirit at work within us. It's how do we acknowledge that we need to be dependent on God in all things who sustains us. This story paints a beautiful picture of God going before us, his plans not being thwarted, that he is sovereign, he upholds, he is in control, he protects everyone in this story, especially Sarah and her purity. This part of the narrative also parts, points to the fact that God knows everyone. Abraham did not think of that even though this people might not know God, God knows these people. Abraham didn't uh, take his, his process of his fears and his lack of trust and his insecurity. He did not bring them before God. He just said, I'm going to go and, and do this plan myself. So it was this illegitimate way of actually getting protection. So the one thing that we can, we can also draw confidence from in this is that in our prayer lives, we are to respond to God authentically and honestly. Why? Because in this passage, it shows us that God already knows what is happening in the inner workings of our lives. So as a, as a believer, as, as someone who's put their faith and trust in Christ and his confidence, our confidence is not in our moral efforts or our moral standings. It's in God. And so this also relies on us to be able to have authentic, honest prayers where we don't have to just say religious phrases, but we can actually say what is on our hearts to God. David does this in the Psalms all the times by exposing where he has uh, fear, by where he has insecurity, by where he is doubting, by where he lacks faith. He's actually bringing that before God. Why is he bringing that before God honestly? Is because he knows that God already knows. And so the difference between what Abraham did and the difference between if he would have brought his honesty before God, it might not have changed the circumstances, but what it would have done is that he would have been journeying and sojourning with God instead of apart from God. And that makes all the difference in the world. We don't have to pretend with God. He already knows where we doubt. He already knows where we struggle with temptation. He already knows where we have fears. And so we bring them into his presence. We bring him into his awareness so that we are shaped and molded by the truth that he can speak back to us into our lives. The gospel confidence is not based on us. So verse 8, Abimelech uh, arose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this thing? 
Abraham said, Because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, I mean, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere we go. Say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. I love how he continues calling him a brother, continues speaking the lie. A thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. Abraham then prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, this is fascinating. Abimelech is a pagan king who has this encounter with the God of the universe, and he responds righteously in this. He responds rightly. And God uses this pagan king to actually confront Abraham with the seriousness of his sin. It's, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating how God works in this story to confront what Abraham has done and the seriousness of what he has done with his wife. So out of fear, uh, in right, rightfully flow, a, a healthy fear, the king is actually asking, is Abraham's God just? And so the king is acting with integrity, and he calls what Abraham has done a great sin. It's this grievous sin that he has brought on there. Now, God in this passage is also elevating marriage. He's actually saying what adultery is. It's not something to be made light of. It's this great sin. Abraham dismissed his marriage to protect himself. Even if he tries to justify it by saying, I was protecting all, God is elevating marriage. It is foreshadowing how, how Christ will love the church and give himself up for his bride. He gave his life on behalf of us. Christ is the husband who doesn't hand us over, but protects us always. So even in this, we, are, we see clearly in Ephesians 5 what was unclear here of what a husband should demonstrate to his spouse. How is a husband to love his wife? It is to uphold a covenant with his spouse, not based on what he can get or transactional, but in covenant that he is to give his life over in service, just as Christ gave himself up for us. How do we do that? Not by our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit at work within us. This is an, uh, a clear message to us of how serious God takes the covenant of marriage in here, that we are to uphold it as well. Verse 12, Abraham goes into a little bit of justifying in this. Well, in all actuality, I mean, she is my sister, my brother, you know, and he goes into all this justifying. And I started thinking about how do we, and then he also, in a way, now it's not clear, and so I'm speculating here, but in a way, he's also blaming God in the sense of like, well, God caused me to leave my house, so that's why I had to sojourn, and that's why I had to do. So he's, he's not only excusing his sin, but he's justifying it, but he's also uh, blaming uh, a little bit in his sin. Now, 
any time that we go outside of God's provision for us and step out and take illegitimate ways to try to grasp something that we think we deserve or need that God has not provided, when we do that, we always end up justifying and blaming. Let me play this narrative out. How many times have you, have you done something where you knew you weren't supposed to do it, and then after you do it, you feel this sense of shame or guilt, and the thing that you end up doing, well, the reason why I did that was because my kids were driving me nuts, or the reason why I did that was because my husband was acting like a jerk, or the reason why I did that was... Sound familiar? That narrative that we play? The reason why that I I chose that illegitimate way was because of this circumstance. And we have a tendency to justify and blame. But in this passage, what what he needed to do was just own what he did and just step into that. He needed to actually just own it. So the one question that I want to ask us is, who do you blame? And when you go to illegitimate ways, what is the question? The question you should be asking yourself is, what am I actually putting my trust in? What am I thinking that this is going to deliver and give me life that God cannot give? What am I actually saying about who God is? And, and this is a, a great thing when you're tempted to, to actually engage with the Holy Spirit in that and actually ask, what do I believe that I need to have life that I'm not getting with God? Why would I turn to that? Not turning to justification of your sin. Now, Abraham is still God's chosen man. God is still going to work his plan through him. God is, is, his plan is not going to be thwarted. But the role of a prophet is introduced here. Now, this will be, this, the role of, of what God is defining as a prophet here will be carried out throughout the Old Testament and that a prophet receives revelation from God. A prophet communicates the revelation that he has received, and then he also intercedes for people. Again, a prophet receives revelation from God, communicates the revelation, and then intercedes for others. Verse 14, how the integrity of the king's heart was to be demonstrated was for him actually to step out and act. And that's true of us. Like, we can't just say, oh, I love you, but then not back it up with actual actions. It can't just be words. And so the king is demonstrating his integrity of his heart in this. And how does he do it? He does it lavishly. He took sheep and oxen and servants and gave them to him. And then he gives them a thousand pieces of silver. Now, it's not payment for his guilt. It's for vindication of Sarah that he is restoring her. Now, uh, conservative estimates say that people would have earned half a shekel a month of silver. Okay. He gives him a thousand pieces. So he, with all that he has given him, gives him equal of what would be about 167 years wages to Abraham. Now the question that we have to ask, now the deeper question is, what did Abraham deserve in this story? Like what, let's just be real. Like what did Abraham deserve from the king? Death. Like, you almost brought this upon my kingdom. Like, I, you deserve to die. I mean, you left your wife and just said she was your sister. I mean, what did Abraham deserve? I mean, let's just be frank with it. But what did he get? This lavish reward. Like, he just got enhanced with all these riches. Is this not a clear picture of the gospel in the Old Testament? What did we deserve? Because of the wages of sin are death. 
We all have chosen to go outside God's provision and chose sin. What do we deserve? Death. What has God given us in Christ Jesus? Everything. In Ephesians, it says that we have every spiritual blessing because of what is in Christ. Anyone who is in Christ has every spiritual blessing. Anyone who is in Christ has the righteousness of Christ covering them. It is as if God does not see that. Everything, everyone who is in Christ, has put their faith and trust in him, is now sons and daughters of God and has complete access to the God of the universe. What did we deserve and what did we get? Complete opposite. Abraham, what did he deserve and what does he get? It's this picture of God's grace. Now, in later centuries, Israel would look back on the claims of God's favor that their birthright was because of Abraham and the law given to them, and they would start boasting in this. And so in Romans 4, uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses this. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works or because he did all these good things, he had something to boast about. But reading this passage, we see that that's not true, right? But not before God. He couldn't boast before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. All by his grace, which is a gift of God, we are credited to righteousness the God who raised Jesus from, from the dead, he, he allows us to be in relationship with him because of what Christ has done for us. And so in Abraham, we have a mirror. We have a mirror reflecting back to us because we could come into this passage and be like, I would never do that. Or I, how could he do that again? How could he choose that again? But in, the, in Abraham, we have this picture of Abraham doing something, going outside of God's protection, outside of God's provision, and, a, and he's rewarded for it. It's ridiculous. He's rewarded for it. And, but in this, we come to see ourselves. We come to see that we have screwed up, that we have failed, that we doubt, that we act cowardly, that we are insecure, that we do all of these illegitimate things all the time, but yet God rewards us and he gives us his grace. It should lead us to be in awe of God and his free gift of salvation to us. Not that any man should boast, but because of what he has done. Now, when we come to recognize that everything has been given to us has flowed from his goodness and his grace, it should leave us not in a place of entitlement, but a posture of thankfulness. So there's one of two ways. Israel chose the, uh, the other way. Most of Israel chose the other way of saying we are entitled to our position because of our lineage and because God has given us the law. And even though he's chosen us, it's because of us. They started boasting that. Now, entitlement would say, of course, I deserve this gift. I'm a deserving person. What else do you have for me? I mean, it's centered in us. That's entitlement. But gratitude says, I am not deserving of any gift. We receive it with joy, and we cherish the gift more because we steward it, because we hold on to its value, because we know that we did not deserve it. This passage so clearly, once again, points to the good news of Jesus and what will happen in the New Testament. Even though Abraham didn't, in fact, deserve to be punished for his wrongdoing, his lying, he was rewarded. God is showing us grace in the Old Testament. He is showing us his character that is not built on Abraham. He did not choose Abraham because he was this 
great guy who we should all build our lives after. He chose Abraham to demonstrate his glory and his grace. And he does the same with us. Brennan Manning has this um, beautiful quote in Ragamuffin Gospel. It says this, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light and dark side. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. Thomas Merton put it, A saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is a gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. While there is much we have earned, our degree, our salary, our home and garden, a good night's sleep, all this is possible only because we've been given so much. Life itself, eyes to see, hands to touch, a mind to shape ideas, and a heart to beat with love. We have been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe when others did not, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is a sheer gift. It is not a reward for our faithfulness, our generous disposition, our life of prayer. Even our fidelity is a gift. If we but turn to God, says St. Augustine, that in itself is a gift. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Salvation is rooted in God alone, in Christ alone, in grace alone. We need him to even see our need for him. We need to come to with our brokenness. It is rooted in God alone by his grace. Dare we admit how broken we are, how we should boast in Christ and what he has done in our weakness. Paul says, Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. Paul has this realization that what he deserved was not what he got. What he deserved, he was rewarded by utter grace. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who are far from him can be made right, not because of their moral efforts, not because they, of their life of prayer, not because of all the good things they would ever do to fill the whole entire world. It is only because of what Christ has done. And so we can proclaim good news to to those who are far from God, who think they don't deserve God or think that God doesn't care about them or doesn't think that they have value because God is saying you have tremendous value. You're, there's nothing that you could have done that could keep you from me because it's not rooted in you. It's rooted in my goodness and my character and who I am. And because it's rooted in who he is, we also, those who have put our faith and trust in him, have complete confidence in him because it's not rooted in him. It's rooted in Jesus and we will never lose our salvation because it's rooted in him who is perfect. It's because of his perfect work, not our own. So who do we boast in? We boast in the grace of God. We boast in our weakness. We can admit our flaws before others because we say it's only because of God that we have this. And we also rely on grace because it is only by God's grace that he will sustain us and give us life and protect us from the things that we so eagerly desire that is illegitimate ways. Y'all, this is the gospel. And I can't think of a better way for us as a community of faith than to take the Lord's table and proclaim his life and death on our behalf of what we did not deserve. It is pointing to his sheer grace. So I'm going to have the ushers come forward and pass out the elements this morning. My hope is that we would praise God for his protection. 
Thank him for the good news of our salvation. The thing that is true, the thing that is so true is that we even in these moments need to thank God for ways that he's protected us that we don't even know about. For ways that he has allowed us not to face the consequences of our brokenness that we don't even know about. We bring that to him. But this morning we also come to realize that so many of us have been trying to build a life with God based on our morality, our efforts. And there's also some of us who have failures like Abraham, and we think we cannot have a relationship with God because of all that we have done, and nothing could be further from the truth. So God's grace is calling both the religious that are trying to build their moral goodness in their own effort, in their own trust, and he's calling those who are far from him thinking that they can never be brought back to a God. But this God calls us by his grace because it is sheer grace. Scott Thomas says, Repentance is rooted in a hatred of sin and a joyful awareness of God's loving kindness, which leads to joy. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Romans 2.4. We rejoice that Christ has done everything for us and all that we need to secure our salvation in a relationship with him and our growth in holiness is in Christ. Our prayer is, Lord, I am an adopted child, not a slave to sin. Would you remind that of me this morning? I'm accepted because of Christ. I have forgotten how loved, secure, and rich, and free I am in Christ. Let me be astonished by your love. So we repent this morning not only of living our lives where our lives have not aligned to the truth, the reality, and the beauty of the gospel. We believe the lie that life could be found somewhere else. So in these next moments as Mandy sings over us this morning, I would love for you to ask the question and begin to reflecting on the awe of God's grace in your life by this. Reflect back in your life and start naming everything in your life that is because of his grace. Not just your possessions, not just what you have or what you've been given, but your standing in Christ, everything that is grace. And just start naming him as an act of worship this morning.